movie interview, everybody. This is Dan bringing us in, and for tonight's episode, we have our wonderful co-hosts and friends with us tonight. Uh, this is Aaron. I'm your uh, 1940s woolen suit expert. This is Blake. I'm your Irish accent expert. This is Brian C., and I'm your Orson Welles expert, you see. You're gonna <laughs> listen to me, you see, or you're gonna get some lead. In your belly. In your belly, see. <laughs> Alright, so we, we watched Lava. this. Very lover. Alright, so that's going to come up with books. The word lover. This is never referenced again. Everyone yeah. thinks Brian's insane. So, this, oh, this is a, a film from 1947? 1947? Yeah. Partially written and directed by Orson Welles. I think he, he worked on the screenplay. Yeah, he co-wrote it. It's adapted so, from a novel. Yeah, so The Lady from Shanghai. So this is a film noir. Uh, this is a classic in the genre, I guess you would say, from the visual medium and the storytelling and how the female lead in this movie really manipulates everybody. Like, really manipulates them. I'm not the expert here, but we picked out some beers that went with the film. You're the beer expert, Dan. We, I am the beer expert, sort of. We, uh, we, we're like, all right, we're going to start in New York and we're going to end in San Francisco. And it's a yacht trip for most of the movie. And, you know, the later half is in San Francisco. Uh, so. Big fun fact, that's Errol Flynn's yacht. It is, from what I read, too. Yeah, it's crazy. It does actually, they do a lot of filming on the yacht and then the places that they go as they go to the Panama Canal. And then but, but anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to digress. I Wait, no, no, was no, the, no, the yacht was named like Cersei or Cersei? No, it was owned by Errol Flynn. Yeah, but the name of the yacht was like Surrey. Oh, 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 sorry. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then from uh, the yacht to like the, the yacht's name, every yacht has its own personality and it's got a lady's name usually, sometimes a mythological name, Cersei, Hydra, Hera. Yeah. Aphrodite. So it's very beer. cool. So the beers that we it. did were popular <laughs> pre turn of the century. So they were also being produced and available uh, during the World War II and post World War II era. Ah. This is post prohibition. Uh, one is a pre prohibition style lager, and the other is just a, what's called a steam beer. So the first one is we're going to talk a little bit more about these in depth later, but the if hopefully I can say this without slaughtering it, Nara Garset or Gar Nara Garret Garset. I think it's we need a new Nara, Nara, Nara Gonset, right? Nara Garset. There's no. N-A-R-R-A-G-A-R-S-E-T-T. So this is a beer that's based out of New York and New Jersey. I thought it was Rhode Island. Rhode Island, I'm sorry. So I, did, I did a terrible Peter Griffin accent in response to it. Yeah. It's been around a long time. I've seen cans of it. Uh, they have the same can design that they've had for over 100 years, so it's it's a pretty old, well-done well PBR. It's got a big old high neighbor on the side. Yes. Have an asset. Gonset.com. Because uh, Nara Gonset's too hard to spell, for one. But Correct. Nara Gonset Brewing Company, Rochester, New York. Write or visit us in... Uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Dan, can we have a podcast field trip to the, the what? To Pawtucket. Yeah, uh, Pawtucket. Yeah, no, probably not. So the movie uh, starts in New York. Sorry, Pawtucket. Listen, they take it. They take a boat trip <laughs> the and they end up in San Francisco. And back in the day, one of the beers, one of the only beers, and in San Francisco, they go to a bar and there are beers brought to the table. And I'm going to assume that they were of this beer, which is Inca Brewing, which is the. Anchor Steam Beer, which has been around since, you know, 1896. An old favorite. And a very old school beer that's been around a long time. Which I can attest was on tap 
in San Francisco in several bars. Yes, I've been really? to San Francisco as well, yes. and I've that's cool. I've actually been to the brewery. I didn't do the tour, but we stopped there to say, "Oh, hey, we've been here." Hey, but, Brian, but, but our but, beer choices match from yes, coast to coast. Exactly. Coast coast. I was I was kind of hoping they would do that. I had read a little bit about the phone before I went seeking beers, and I had a list. And I'm glad we didn't end up with the cores of the Miller High Life or <laughs> the Budweiser because those are the ones that were also around at that time and very popular. Were they bad then too? They were. It was all garbage. Blake was trying to say something before. Brian, when you got this, uh, Blake, the steam beer on tap. <laughs> yes, there. <laughs> they got the steam beer on tap. Were you uh, being uh, convinced by some maniac named Griswold, wherever his name was, to Grisby to, Grisby to quote unquote kill him? <laughs> Why? No, I wasn't. Thank I'll God. pay you $5,000 to kill me. Yes, we're going to plot spoil the hell out of this. Because it's mean, been around a while. Yeah, it's not a Marvel movie. We can it's spoil a, it. like a 60-something, 60 65-year-old movie now. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's almost at the 75-year mark where it then becomes public domain. <gasps> I cannot oh, wait to rewrite okay. the script. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. So, this film, in, in broad strokes, a man is hired by a rich lawyer and his wife to be a boat hand. Mm-hmm. Right. And and after was, following an act of heroism in a park, which may or which may not have up. been a setup. It was totally yeah. set up. Was it totally set up? It's yeah. all yeah. set up. Okay. Well, yeah. they never really cover, but you're, I think you're supposed to assume, oh, they're setting everything up. They want him to take the it. fall. Right. Yeah. So, uh, we also meet the lawyer's partner, who's also a rich lawyer. You know, if you're, it is a, uh, the partner in the firm. And, partner and in not, the firm. Not like romantic partner. Yeah. We never yes, find yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, Grisby's romantic partner. If he has one. Dan has theories about that. I have theories. He was very sweaty and was in eight inches of a lot of these closed shop shots. And I was like, just kiss him already. They were all sweaty, Dan. They were all sweaty. sweaty. Because they they went to Acapulco through the Panama Canal. Lots of hot places. All right. So he has a hot platinum blonde wife. Indeed. Rita Hayworth. And And the swarthy fall guy is Orson Welles. With his shirt open most of the time. And, and, and he and Rita Hayworth were actually married at the time. Ooh, girl. So she and he have an affair, and one of the law firm partners, it gets really convoluted, but but both law firm partners have a life insurance policy. Right. And so it's decided that one of them is going to pretend to die to get a payoff on the insurance, but then he ends up dead. <laughs> Bum, bum, bum. And Orson Welles. Michael O'Hara. Michael O'Hara. Michael oh, yeah, O'Hara. Michael O'Hara. The oh. Black Irish. Oh, the heck of a part of It was awful. Yeah, there's a lot of mix. <laughs> and he takes the fall. Mixed, yes. And and there's a really big climactic scene in the Hall of Mirrors that I think, I, I think you were saying that this is the first time they had done this kind of shot. With all of these reflections and stuff. Yeah, and it's kind of an iconic scene. scene. It was the iconic Hall of Mirrors scene where everybody's reflected and talking to each other. And the, the film, the frame is divided into six to nine different shots yeah. with different characters talking to each other. Right. They, they do that thing where they keep shooting what they think is the person, but it's a reflection. It's been parodied in a lot of cartoons, TV shows, movies. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but it's a regular just... You know, villain versus good guy. Uh, you'll never find me, hero. Bang, bang, bang. 
but glass shattering. What and eventually the wrong be? person gets shot. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then the right person gets shot. Yep. Yeah. Everybody dies. And, and, then we get, and then we get a beer. <laughs> and then we get a beer. Yeah. Well, uh, and 80, one, of the, minutes later. <laughs> one of the closing lines of the film is everybody's a fool for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is somebody else's fool. Yeah. But that was visually, that was so interesting to see, you know, with the Hall of Mirrors and kind of even before, you know, a few moments before, like, Dividing up the screen into like showing a couple different portraits, of, yeah, you know, a couple different faces, and then you know seeing like Rita Hayworth holding a gun, but then you see her face and you see Bannister's face, and you know but as if they were floating heads, kind of thing, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, disembodied heads, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. like seeing that, I mean, like what a cr- what a creative uh, visualization of kind of there's all these loose threads coming together. There's all these, and everybody's got their own perspective of like they know different parts of the story, and, and you know they're kind of coming together this moment, and then what's real and what's illusion, what's you know. As this whole film of it, it does noir the way noir is supposed to be done. You follow the lead hero and no one else, so and, and you only know what they know, maybe. Right. But but you see like six different threads that eventually yeah. come yeah. together at this final climactic scene. Right, and it's really cool. It's really cool the way it's. Well, and, and it, it 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 definitely shows Orson Welles as the auteur, as both the director and the actor in this moment, and narrator, and narrator. He narrates right, most yeah. of it. He's uh, a another, cla- another classic no, uh, noir move. Yeah. Well, and also classic Orson Welles move. He narrates a lot of Citizen Kane and right. the Magnus Ambersons, and uh, we're going to take an aside here to talk about Orson Welles. Yes. This film was actually a two and a half hour film. Dude. Holy cow. And the studio, just like it had in Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Ambersons, wanted re a re edit and a recut. So, dear listener, the and, final and, cut and is and like 88 minutes. Like yeah. it's not a two yeah. and a half hour uh, like you're right. Yeah. So Orson Welles actually brought this film in on time and on budget. Wow. But the studio executive said, no, I don't like this. Well, his, his first comment was, you cut off Rita Hayworth's uh, long red hair and turned into her into a platinum blonde. That's a problem. His, his <laughs> second problem was, go reshoot all this shit, and we're going to re-edit it. And eventually it came in a year over budget, and that's a lot of money. And that helped Orson Welles become a pariah in Hollywood. This was one of his last oh. big studio films. Mm-hmm. And and it, it, it brings up the dichotomy of Orson Welles. Most of his studio films have never been seen as he's intended them to be seen. Huh. Like we never got director's cuts and stuff. And we, yeah, and most of that footage is lost. Like the hour that's missing from this film has never been seen. We, we know about it from notes, and that allows Orson Welles, on one hand, to say, I'm great. You've never seen these films the way they were intended. But on the other hand, the studio may have been right. They may have been yeah. crappy. So it, it leads to the myth of Orson Welles as a great director. That's wild. But you can see in this film his genius. The, mm-hmm. the final scene with the Hall of Mirrors is amazing yes. and fantastic. And in fact, right before that, there's this whole fun house uh, vibe, pointed this out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which was intent 
in the original cut was 25 minutes long. Wow. Okay. 25 like minutes of that would be a little too much. Well, I, mean, I gotta say. However, the, the idea the is that yeah. maybe they cut out some amazing stuff that uh, is now yeah. gone forever. Uh, like the, the, the fun house scene that led up to the kind of the climatic Hall of Mirrors shootout. Uh, that funhouse scene was fascinating in and of itself because how do you visually show somebody kind of going down a rabbit hole of like conspiracy theory and trying to puzzle out what happened, kind of the detective work? And, and he's also on some drug drug of some sort. Of sort yeah. Oh yeah, I honestly again forgot about the pills he took. <laughs> yeah, he took he took a bunch but, of pills. But like a classic move is like quick cuts, like quick cuts, uh, like manipulating the the, the camera frames so. Like so, everything looks wobbly. Like this was in black and white, and I was getting disoriented. And when Aaron pointed out, it's like his ma- his mental madness is matching his physical madness. Like, oh my god, it is. Yeah. But the, the it's other, a movie. The other classic <laughs> war thing, though, is like almost nobody in this film was totally innocent. No, right. Everyone's guilty of something. Guilty. Yep. Yep. Ban- Bannister, the lawyer, Chase was the kiss. was trying to. <laughs> what, he he had his own motivations where he was trying to get maybe some insurance money. Uh, uh, Grisby was definitely trying to, you know, get insurance money and, you know, maybe go on the run, maybe not. Elsa, his wife, probably did want to kill them both, and you know, yeah, inherit, inherit it all, inherit it all. And if nothing else, she was an adulteress, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. she had the she divorce. Was unfaithful. She had the divorce detective following her around. So, like, oh yeah, that guy. I, I, I yeah. deeply enjoyed this movie, and so I want you to know, like listener and fellow host, I deeply enjoyed this movie, and and that's where I'm asking this question of like, who are you really cheering for? None of them. They're and, all guilty. Dan's cheering for nobody. Nobody. They're all guilty. I'm cheering for Goldie and his monkey. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm cheering for Rita Hayworth because she's gorgeous. Oh, boy. It's hard to look away. But also, like, you know, Mike O'Hara, like, this guy that was just thrown into the situation yeah, trying to do the best he didn't he try ever. terribly hard to get away though he yeah. just kept kind of he struggling said, he slapped Elsa though the yeah, person, but, yeah but that was after he was on the boat he could have just, yeah. just kept shrugging on that guess I'm rooting for him because yeah. I mean he was he's just a simple sailor right. but on the other hand he knows he's a a fly caught in a web. He's, he's a murderer. He, he's, he freely admits to many people in the film that yeah, but he was in Spain. In a war? Well, it's war. It was a Spanish Civil War. He Franco killed, was the fascist. Yeah, he killed a fascist they, they were in the Spanish Civil War. Hitler. That's, that's, that got you, in 1947, <laughs> that got you a pass. Like You could have killed as many fascists as you wanted to in 1947. Right. The world has changed, because now if you kill the fascist, maybe you're the bad guy. Oh, but... Like, no, in 1947, if you killed... <laughs> Way to take the podcast, Dan. Uh, I should also add with uh, O'Hara because he's an aspiring novelist. I thought you were going to say because he's Irish. No, as boy, I'll, I'll do like 10 seconds on this. That accent came and went. I forgot oh, he had it until it just came in full force. It sounds southern a half the time. Dan and I are trying to hash out for the podcast. What was the third accent? Yeah, no, it sounded very. It's just him. It, it, it sounded like almost New England, North. Like, I kind of wish he. Really I wish he had just, I love Orson Welles' just voice. I wish he'd just done that. I, I'm sure I kind of understand why he went with like you know an Irish American or Irish person in America in the early late forties to make him believable as a sailor. Right, right. Which is like. Maybe it's because I'm woke, but it's, that's dumb. <laughs> he was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The Wisconsinite accent is what you're probably picking up there. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> as, as Aaron Gibson doing a little bit. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so there's, um, there's, there's, yeah. More, there's more to talk about with Orson Welles. I mean, Brian, you're a, you're a plethora 
you're you're the deep diver here. Give us some more insights. Uh, all right. So this was maybe his fourth or fifth big Hollywood movie, and he was already on the outs. He was already felt he was kind of hard to work with, and this really kind of cemented that. Was it the auteur, sort of uncompromising, perfectionistic? It, it was very much that. And and you can see it in his work. I mean, he's he's well known for extremely deep focus. Uh, this film, yeah, you you see it, out the, uh, you, you've got both the foreground and the deep background in just, focus, which is not that hard to do on a sunny day. But there were also night shots that you could geez. see just focus went on forever, which is is hard, especially with film of, of that era. It, it wasn't as forgiving. It was harder oh, yeah, to hold you, things in focus. You had a limited amount of film. Like, Judd Apatow uh, is known for doing hours of uh, alternate cuts for his comedies because it's digital. You, you can film all day. You're never going to run out. But, but I was going to say, this came out six years after Citizen Kane. What was he well-regarded like right after Kane? Because we, we, I watched it ten years ago. I was like, this is... He invented this? This is phenomenal. He well, invented a bunch of techniques. He, he and his cinematographer came up okay. with a lot of those techniques. Kind of Stan Lee's uh, Steve Ditko thing where Lee takes all the credit. Like, ah, I did this. Like, yeah, I, drew I mean, he, he was definitely a perfectionist and an yeah. auteur. He, yeah. he, 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 there's definitely something there. And you can even you can see it in some of his independent films that he shot in Spain later, Ooh. like uh, The Chimes at Midnight, which we could do a whole podcast on, or uh, Don Quixote. Um, oh, he did nice. some, you know, uh, F for Fake was actually Spanish, but that had some American release. He was famously over budget and over time for Citizen Kane and The Magnificent Ambersons, and in both cases, the studio took over the edit from him. Mm-hmm. And and he was not happy. Hard to work with. And uh, most of our tours aren't. Yeah. And and and, uh, and like I was saying earlier, we don't really know what his vision would have been, and it could have been crap. I mean, the studio be amazing. The studios could have been right, but there's definitely, you know, he was definitely a master of cinema. We can't Don't know really. the full extent. It would be amazing if we found an alternate universe where you got the full Orson Welles cuts in the hours that were cut out with just pies in the face. Yeah, just <laughs> who's on first bits. He's like, this is brilliant. I'm brilliant. Like, come on, man. This has been done. This is in Brazil. <laughs> come on. Brian, if I can, going back to the sure. idea. Terry Gilliam is your friend. Yes. Going back to the idea before where you said that uh, a lot of Orson Welles shots, they have, like, you know, both the foreground and the deep background in focus. Yeah. I. Was there something specific Wells was trying to achieve with a lot of those types of shots? Like, was was that meant to kind of help immersion or kind of you know increase the... stage them in space? Because if it's out of focus, you don't know what it is. Well, I mean, sometimes you well, well, like, like a play. play. My, my yeah. basic understanding is like sometimes a, a director will use focus to try and uh, uh, nudge audience attention to one specific thing. Yeah, on yeah, yeah. And I wonder if, like, maybe Wells is, is instead of trying to nudge our attention onto Rita Hayworth's beautiful face, maybe... Oh, no, every time her face was on the screen, it was soft focus, that was the only thing you saw. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, no, but, anyway. but, but, I mean, like, these shots that have such, you know, deep... Everything's in focus. Yeah, but my guess, though I I don't remember having talked about this, I have taken up Orson Welles' class, I don't remember this, but my my guess is he's... 
his idea is that we've got this huge screen. This was before video. This was before movies on TV. What? We've, we've got this huge screen. The silver screen. Let's use all of it. Why not use all of it? Uh, and certainly in Citizen Kane, one of, one of the most talked about shots is when the young Kane at the beginning of the film is out the window playing with his sled in the snow while his family sells him to the the orphanage or whatever it is. So telling that, that idea of the, the main idea of the film of the family getting rid of the boy, mm-hmm. where he's having this happy memory with his sled out the window, which mm-hmm. comes back later in the film. I think you're selling a kid named Orson to an orphanage, and you're selling him to an orphanage. Yeah. So I would also, so my my sort of take on this is, is he shooting it like he's seen? Because the human oh. eye is going to have everything in focus. Hmm. You, you can, like, obviously, stuff's going to be blurry way, way off. But his in, it's like, so, from a photography standpoint... Right, our, our eyes lens, pull focus so quick that yeah. we don't notice a difference in focal length. Correct. Correct. My whole thing is, is I've, I've shot with 35mm on, a like, a 15... A lens that's only 15 to, to 20. So, it is the shortest lens you can get super. It's, like, less than two inches deep. So you're you're gonna see a full range of focus. There is no zoom. There is you are seeing the equivalent of what you would say non mirror lensed, you know, full frame camera. And, right. and that's how my interpretation as somebody who's done photography for years and, and knows more about that than anything, yeah. I'm like, he's doing it like a full frame. You're seeing everything. Right, yeah, yeah. And one of the criticisms of this film at the time was that it was too documentary. Mm. Which, which definitely some of the boat shots and some, the the party in Acapulco were kind of felt like the dialogue and the scene was incidental to all the stuff going on in the background. There, there were in the court. There was a courtroom scene, and some of the shots were of people kind of shuffling in the seats. A woman took gum out of her mouth and stuck it under the chair. And yes. I lost my mind. Like, I why like, am I why, seeing the why subway? Why is this being shown? I actually said that yeah. out loud while we're seeing it. I'm like, why is this being filmed? And I think it was maybe the style of like trying to do like immersion and realism of yeah. like Orson Welles is going to show you all the detail of what's going on there, and not just the things that would be you know. The focus pertinent to the plot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, A lot of courtroom dramas. You don't see old. You don't hear or see old women standing up and and shouting hilarious things, pushing us to (laughs) cast uh, the old ladies from Shanghai. There's there's humor in this ball. There's humor to this though too because. Without giving anything away, well, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate Without the effort. Giving anything, give what, it away. The, one of the main characters, dies the, eventually. The, <laughs> the lawyer, you know, the Bannister. Bannister, yeah, he's called as a witness, and then he cross-examines himself. That was, such a, that that was so good. And it was like done, it was such like panache and comedic effect, uh, mm-hmm. you know, of like, yeah, here's this lawyer, he is very good at what he does, he's very smart, he might be a terrible human being. Oh, but here's is. this moment where he's like shining and funny and smart, and he's kind of winning. You can tell he's kind of winning the jury. And the, the, they cut to the judge laughing and then stifling his laughter. Yep. Yep. Nope. Good stuff. Very good. I think at this point, we all agree this is a great film. There's no nudity, no language. It's it's like a PG, G, like there's three. Adulterous kissing. There is adulterous kissing. There's a, a, a man smacking a woman. And there's some smoking, which I, mean, I think people smoking. would yeah. freak out. And, and drinking. no smoking signs. And, and there's a little bit of beer. Oh yeah, like so bad drugs to kill. So basically, anything that you would see on primetime TV today, but half is bad. 
and there's no color, so it's it's fine. But this yeah. kind of classic corn gold soundtrack with like you know the the, the strings and the orchestra. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it fit really well. Oh, and I was going to ask about that. The sound, the sound design worked really well. I didn't notice it at all, which means it did its job because it helped communicate, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I was listening to the score, the musical score, because Orson Welles apparently hated the score. Yeah, I read some <laughs> trivia and, that the and studio, the studio added, added it later. Yeah. The the only thing that re- I really bumped on was kind of the classic a Hawaiian aloha music <laughs> yeah. during their Mexican In Mexico, uh, party. Right. Right. There was a little, that was a little heavy handed for me. Like, uh, Oh my God. Apparently, there's supposed to be no music in the Hall of Mirror scene, but the studio insisted and they added it. So now I'm trying to. I'm sure there's a YouTube cut of just that scene with no music and see what it just feels like. I imagine more traumatizing. That seems yeah. so odd to me because, I mean, it classically, like, so I thought music, it worked. music tells the audience how to feel about what they're seeing. Right. Yeah. In theory, yes. In comic book movies, it's to introduce uh, new characters or returning characters. Yeah, true. There's always a setup. So the film... There's always a setup, and there's always a patsy, and there's always a film. There is. And, and <laughs> there's always a band. The music can highlight and can also distract. And this, I don't think it did either of that. It was just there. Right. I didn't notice it. I laughed about it a few times because I was like, oh, that was very typical of... That was very Hollywood. There, there's, there's a few trails. There's, there's a few woodwind trails. There's a yes. few of uh, the, the classic... Conga. Uh, Conga, something like <laughs> Lush String, like pretty standard old Hollywood uh, well, soundtracks. It, it, for a romantic kiss, the, you know, the string instruments kind of swell up at the old yeah, And yeah, then yeah. you hear the children giggling in the background and it pans <laughs> over and, and you see them And the oversized giggling. fish that... Uh, oh my God. I can from They transpose to be... More looming and menacing. I think they I just wanted the background to appear lighter, so they just they, they, they enlarged the 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 tanks, the, the giant scary fish, the, the <laughs> eel, and the, the big the turtle. Yeah. My God, the turtle was bigger than like it, it was like ten feet wide. It was like what the hell? But in like, 1947, what internet would you go to to be like? What's this enormous turtle? If you said the word turtles. internet in 1947, uh, they would know. You would label this crazy. You would just like a frisbee. You would be crazy, right. just like these beers that we're going to talk about here. Oh yeah, it's so to transition. We'll, we'll we'll thank you for hanging in there and listening to us Babylon. Oh, you're welcome, this great film. And, and and again, I think everyone suggests you watch it. Be prepared. It's black and white. It's classic film noir. It's not going to be super exciting, but it is. I think super, super exciting. No, Brian mentioned it didn't hold up as much as he thought it did, but I, having seen it for the first time, I, I really liked it. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I'd recommend I, it. I have no problems. I don't mind black and white films. I don't mind something that's got a little plot-driven devices and stuff, but, you know, you got to have something to drink while you're doing it. You do, and water just won't always cut it. There's so much seawater, it'll make you sick. I know, and this takes place a lot on the ocean. Half the film is, is on a boat, so you well, see a lot of water. Yeah, and, you know, with uh, such a stunning blonde in the film, I'm surprised we don't have a blonde ale, but you, we, yeah. do have, we do have beer Because you should be works. red-headed, yells Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one that we did, I, so again, we uh, I, I knew what we were watching, and I was like, all right, I did a little research. It's both East Coast and West Coast. So I, I sought out beers that were being made and available at that time. So post-World War II era, or right around World War II. And there was one that was from the East Coast that I was able to find, and one on the West Coast that I was able to find. The one on the East Coast is Nargesset. So I, I'm going to obliterate this name because I, I cannot 
There's an N. It's an N, yeah. So <laughs> get him, Brian. Narganset. Ganset? Narganset. You gotta say like Peter Griffin, Narganset. Narganset. Providence, Rhode Island is in New York State uh, is where it's produced. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. called a Heritage American pre-prohibition lager. So this is made in the same style and methods that they made beer, and the ingredients obviously are updated and changed. The recipe shifted a little bit based on what's available. But back in the day, this thing was made with whatever they could find because, so, you know, so, consistency so, of ingredients was difficult. Prohibition Dan. ended in 1933. Correct. And so, like, we would expect, like, the recipe that's used in 1947, like, would there be, like, recognizable consistency to what we can see? That's now? why it's called pre-prohibition. So the style and the ingredients, they tried to reproduce what was pre during, like, when they first started making it. This is called the Original Six. So back in 1890, um, this was the best-selling beer in New England. um, And from the 1930s to the 1970s, uh, it was it was in film. It was in TV. Really? Yes. So uh, it was Dr. Seuss. Theodore Geisel? If Dr. Seuss if Dr. Well, Seuss promoted this beer, I'm drinking. But hold on. It. This Dr. is what Captain the Hat drinks. Yes. <laughs> it's I'm also, let, I'd appreciate a beer in a can. I'd appreciate it. Yes, I am. Yes. So, and that's probably where it comes from. They they probably have funny little quips about the the movie Jaws. I love that movie so much. 1977. The captain is drinking this on the boat. Oh, I Quinn? do not. Yes. Nice. So there was a, at some point, at least on television, like broadcast TV, it became illegal to show people drinking alcohol. Correct. Did it? And that was in like the late eighties or, or yeah. like maybe early. So before that, they could have whatever they wanted in film. Because I know in two thousands ish, people were drinking like you know Budweiser with the, the label turned in. I was not aware of that. Uh, yeah. That change. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. At some point, it became to, to present. When, when did che- well? When did Cheers come out? Was it? I, I guess after that. But so you can, you can have people in a bar, and you can have people okay. with beer in their hand, but you oh, can't show okay. them like you know. So like, you can't show them. Oh yeah, they never do. Do they? So this is so also like there with It's like the bodyguard. Kevin yeah. Costner has a beer, and he's talking to Whitney Houston, and he just, and he just never drinks drink the beer. He just never, never drinks the beer, and you're like, God damn it, Kevin. There's yeah. a beer. So <laughs> it's getting warm. This is this is also the first alcoholic beverage to have been partnered and is on the uniforms of a professional sports team, the Boston Red Sox, from 1944 to 1975. Nice. I kid you not. This Check out these Red Sox and these PA logos. This so, is a storied beer. It is very storied. It's like a storied movie. I'm loving yes. this episode so, so the it, it's you know The problem is, is that it has to travel from the East Coast, and sometimes it'll be heat-struck. Ours, fortunately, weren't so heat-struck. I think we had a little bit of interesting oh this is a really kind of sharp lager it's it's dry and thin uh it it has a very clean taste it's not really really it's not super crisp and sharp but it is a little round but it does also have a little bit of sweetness to it there's some kind of crackery corny alt vibes going on in the back which is kind of okay for the style a little more cereal than like rainier correct and And it's going to be really mouth coating it's going to you're going to know that you're drinking this beer and it's going to linger a bit it really lingered a lot for me which is fine as someone who did a fair bit of drinking on the east coast and had uh, access to such uh wonderful options as uh national bohemian and uh whatever yinglings this had a better taste than Natty Bo's. Yeah. But Natty Bo has a, like, it's less body to it. So you could drink, knock out more of them 
and, and look cool to your friends who are all dumb dumbs. <laughs> yeah, so this is like 12%, tw- or 5% ABV oh, is 12 say. IBU. No, it's 12 IBU. It's super <laughs> low end on the hops. Wait, we're low. really good at this. <laughs> I, again, folks, we're gonna, here's, a hit, here's a lesson for you. IBU doesn't equate to bitterness. It can have a bitter taste and not have a lot of IBUs, right. which is, it, this is a good example of that. It had that kind of sharpness, but it was still rounded in tongue coating. So it was, a, it was an interesting and well-done beer. I liked it. has been around a long time. I think it matched the movie really, really well. Yeah. I, I, I could have... It felt like New York City. I, I'm glad we had the uh, the second beer we're going to talk about, but I could have done two to three of these chests for this movie. It was... I got a second oh, one. We Turns might disagree out. about our favorite beer. Ooh, Ooh, let's get into the second beer so we can so I can fight Aaron. Yeah. yeah. All right, Brian, Pumpy, any, Pumpy any Pumpy thoughts on that first beer? Uh, I thought it went very well with the film. I like the fact that it's the East Coast Lager. Yeah. And we started in New York City. Yeah. There's a sailboat on the can, and he's a sailor, the main character. For the listeners, everyone else looked at the can as Brian said that. Yeah, like, yeah there is a sailboat. <laughs> like, we didn't believe it, but we all have to verify. Yeah, because yeah. I'm a big liar. <laughs> no, just like a film no, for noir. me, it's like, where was that sailboat? I'm sure it's there. So the question is, is like, what the hell is this? It says, made on honor, sold on merit. Interesting. It also says, hi, neighbor. <laughs> it does say hi, neighbor. No can I find, though, how much, uh, like, what percentage of alcohol there is, uh, like, on the can. I know. I don't see anywhere. I know the party. Because when they sell it in a six-pack, that information needs to be on the six-pack packaging yeah. and not on the can itself. Uh, yeah, that's that's like, yeah, Yingli does that. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's okay. that's why this is called the original six. So these were probably only sold in six pack and probably cans smaller than this, normal size cans, not the tall boys. Okay, we got pints here. I these frankly were, didn't know yeah. you could buy a single beer until I moved out to the West Coast. Like oh, East, right. Coast, East Coast is just big into everything's in packages. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like you got six pack abs rather than just one ab. No, no, with all the I was drinking. Nah. <laughs> yeah, I think. You know, find an East Coast lager if you're going to watch this, because I think it goes very well with the first half of the movie. Danny Bo is the uh, the Pringles of beer. Pringles. The man has a little mustache. Yeah. The second beer, though. The second beer. <laughs> so we're going to talk about here, which we haven't done an Anchor Brewing Company oh, beer yet out of San Francisco. Really? I feel bad. We've done 100 episodes plus, and we haven't done one of their beers. You, you, you're slipping, man. You're slipping. I know. Well, to make up for Brian, get on. Tonight's the night. Tonight is the night. So Anchor Steam beer. So I love this beer. Those that are familiar on the West Coast, and it is available across the Midwest and East Coast, this beer gets distributed very widely. This nice. is what is classified as a California Commons if you're going to do any judging, but typically it's just called steam beer or Dampf beer. So Dampf beer from Germany was basically the classification of beer that's made with an ale yeast, but treated like a lager initially. Oh, cool. So it starts warm and crashes cold, Mm. and they let it sit cold as long as they can. So in San Francisco, the migrants from Germany came over with this Dampf beer recipe and was like, oh, it gets really freaking cold at night. Let's put our beer beer on the roof. To cool it or open all the windows, and that's why they call it a steam beer. It, because all the beer starts steaming I never knew this. You, as this it is, cools off. Wow, that's awesome. I that's like, exactly why it's called that. It's it's an amazing thing because it's like, okay, in Europe, the same thing. It's going to be warm during the day and cool at night. So Does that slow down, the, like the maturation? Of, yes. Like, all, so like you get maybe a little more complexity. Yes. Because uh, the whole process takes a little bit longer. You, you get kind of more of these different, like, layers of flavor 
Versus if it's if it's something that's brewed very quickly, it might be a little bit more simple, more straightforward. They didn't have ice when they started making it. Like they didn't have enough ice to ice come in and invented, like yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> ice invented, invented. invention. But in the 1800s, they didn't have it's refrigeration. Saw, sawdust. You, you'd cut it out of a lake somewhere and you put it in sawdust for the summer, and it was a luxury item. It was yes. very expensive. Yeah. I'm gonna go to the other film nerd here, and as Dan described, they. You know, move, move all the stuff, and when it gets cold, and I can't stop picturing with the visuals of this film, like black and white, uh, a shot, of, uh, uh, like a light shot just on the top of the barrel, as you see like mist or steam kind of rising up with like a kind of soundtrack going, a lot of violins, like the the image of just steam coming off these these barrels just. I don't know. It's well, they're, they're it would, been taken, it would be so very cinematic. Wow, it's even better. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's just like, like, like all here. those water towers you see on, yeah. on yeah, tenements in New York yeah. City, but they're filled with beer instead yeah. of water. And they yeah, yeah, yeah. at night because it's the just beer a, is slow, a slow pan from the uh, bottom to top. Yeah. yeah. So the term steam beer pre 1980s was the actual like classification. Anything that was done in this method where you're using a lager yeast, but you're pitching it at a warmer temperature and then letting it crash you typically what's called a bottom ferment. So it, it's going to be a beer that can, the yeast will survive at that temperature. It won't, stop for, it won't start fermenting, but it will as it starts crashing in temp or going down in temperature. Can't stop, won't stop. Correct. So once it gets down to a certain temp, it'll start fermenting out. So usually in the 50s, it's yeah. 42 to 50-ish, it'll ferment. Kind of a sweet spot. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, and so when you start... Incident. Yeah, correct. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's uh, your the, so they, they actually, the term steam beer is copyrighted by them, so they the, the judging had to change the name to California Common. Oh, so it's Lord, like, yeah. that's, a, that's a stupid corporate move. Yeah, it is. <laughs> no, we we, but but as, as someone who is uh, consistently broke, uh, I love capitalism. Please, listeners, buy ad time for us. <laughs> yeah, so a 4.9 ABV, typically around 70 IBU. So this is a hoppy beer. It's more amber and caramel color. Uh, it does have kind of a bready malt forward. Uh, it's kind of a dark fruit banana ester, almost. Almost. Dark, dark, I was getting kind of a nutty character yeah. of it too, though. And the hops are actually well hidden behind all that malt activity. Right. Yes. It, it only has one hop, and it uses Northern Brewer, which mm -hmm. has been around since 1800s. It's a, a local American hop strain that was developed here and is only used typically on the West Coast. They don't usually use it on the East Coast. It's a West Coast hop that's really common. Uh, it's available a lot of places when brewers use it. I've used it in beer. It's a very clean, classic approach. It's, it's, a, it's a fine American hop for fine American drinkers. Yes, it is. Uh, so they do a blend of two-row pale and caramel. So this is a very simple, simple beer in its ingredients. And it's just the process that they treat it right. Um, it doesn't get infected, hopefully. And it ends up being kind of like little carbonated over carbonated esb almost vibe mm. but not earthy dry leafy because mm -hmm. you it does dry out a little bit but it still has that like i'm still getting an american hop vibe and i i really think this is a good classic american beer i appreciate it i drank mine really fast because i was like oh yeah this is a great beer again yeah. though i mean it sounds like there's kind of a, a longevity in the, the ingredients and the process and the, the beer that they would have been drinking in 1947 which we do suspect we saw on screen in Correct. San Francisco. Yeah. It's, it's Dan, a, Dan called it out. It's a classic uh, San Francisco beer. I I lived in San Francisco for a little while, and this beer was on tap in a lot of bars. 
it's not known as a foggy night beer, but this is what it, the steam is what they're saying. So if you can imagine, if you've ever been in San Francisco, once the sun goes down or just as the sun goes down, it gets foggy pretty much yeah. all the time. It gets wet and cold. Yeah. And so when you have warm beer where you're going to brew and then put it out, yeah, it's going to steam a little bit. I mean, even, even if it's not that cold, it's still going to steam because you're going from a boil and it's going to slowly oh, yeah. drop to a temp. Yeah, the and even then, air temp to, yeah. the air temp is going to be in the 40s or below that, and your beer temp is still going to be between 60 and 70 if it's coming off of a boil and sat there for a while. So, yeah, it's still going to put off well, some steam. And so I think while that's not a really official way to think about it, that's what everybody has written and said, yeah, that's really why they call it that is the steam that comes off of it as it's cooling in the air. So if I can ask, Dan, uh, I mean, it makes sense to me, San Francisco, like, yeah, they're, they're next to this huge heat sink with the Pacific Ocean. It keeps the air temp cooler. What part of Germany were they doing the, uh, what did you call it? Dampf. 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 Yeah. Dampf Francisco. Was it like the, the north uh, with the, uh, near the Baltic? Where, where places where they, it's, you don't have, or it's like sea level where you're not going to get, there's no cellaring because the water table is too high. Okay. Uh, yeah. so, so you may have a basement or you may not. So, so you have to figure out how you can make beer. This was an adaptation then yeah. because you couldn't you couldn't cellar it. Then what you're doing is you're using the ambient air temperature when you can. Correct. So you kind of slow that fermentation down. Yep. Draw that process out and get kind of more complexity into your finished beer. And, and there are very few places in Germany still making what's classified as dump beer or steam beer, and it, which is sad because I think it's a great approach. So there's a hybrid style that is really common now called IPL or India Pale Lager. So they take an oh, ale yeah, and, yeah. and use a lager yeast instead of an ale yeast to crash it. And then, so it's the same thing. It's basically the same beer as a steam beer. You're taking it, you're pitching the yeast at a warmer temp and letting it crash down. As long as the yeast survives, it'll sit there for a couple weeks to a month. And it'll ferment out all the way and become dry and have some complexity because the longer it sits, the more complex it gets. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the flavors have a chance to mature and, and kind of mix and commingle a little more better yeah. instead of just being a very fresh, clean. And, and this beer. was definitely a more complex taste yes. than the mm -hmm. first beer. Yeah. Uh, how did you guys feel it went with the spell? I, I'm glad we drank this one second. Because uh, we, we kind of went from a little bit lighter, a little bit thinner, to go a little bit heavier, a little bit more complex. Uh, I, I will admit... Kind of as the film got a little more complex. Yeah, I feel yeah. that. Um, and a little darker, also. Yeah. But I'll say, uh, I have been drinking Anchor State beer for like, since I moved to the West Coast. Yeah. I like this beer a lot. Uh, so I, I enjoyed it with the movie very much. I, I think, you know, kind of the complexity matched the complexity of the movie. Um, I think it was, you know, because I know it's a, it's a beer that I know and I like, you know, watching this movie that I'm already enjoying and with camaraderie that I'm already enjoying, like, to me, it fit really nicely and it fit really well. Your mileage may vary if this isn't a, a favorite beer that you grew up with. I, I found the changeover between the two a little harsh. harsh. Yeah. yeah they they, they, they didn't match well together. Right. But they matched the movie pretty well, though. I mean, yeah. if the yeah. film does start out very New York-y and very story-driven character. There's a lot of... Well, it's got to get that setup in, so you understand what the correct. stakes are, who you're dealing with, so when you get to the back half of the twist on twist on twist on twist, you're like, I... I there's a lot more narration on. at the beginning. Yeah, and I yeah. think that match kind of like, yeah. this beer is kind of like, oh, it's in the background, and more it's helping you along. And it moves to more dialogue. And, yeah. and the dialogue in, this, in the suspense is way 
more matched to a more complex beer, such as the, the Anchor or Steam beer. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. Our suggestion would be, if you can't find these beers, find a nice lighter lager to start with, and then maybe move on to something a little more complex, yeah. like an saying, ESB or an Amber or something. Brian, I don't think you said, uh, like, did, did you like Anchor? With, with well, I, I've been drinking Anchor Steam for a long time, too. And it surprised me, because I thought, oh, maybe my bottle's heat struck, because the changeover between the two was kind of not what I was expecting. Bitter flavor versus bitterness as just yeah. it's an agent. It's like the two are completely different. The flavors of bitterness and acidity from a hop doesn't mean it's bitter. It's just that's a flavor versus right, yeah. the it, IBU level. They, they, it they was clash. Much, much more malty and the other was kind of light to yes. me. And, and I mean, once my palate kind of changed over, I was fine and I enjoyed it yeah. because I enjoyed this beer. Yeah, on other occasions. It took a couple of sips. I, I think yeah. we all experienced I, I, I that. I'm with Brian on that, where we both thought, I don't know if our bottles are okay, but Aaron's saying it tastes great. Like, I'll give it a chance. Yeah, and a few sips in, oh, yeah, this is a really good beer. I just tend to prefer uh, the lighter lager pilsner beer. So, And being East Coast born, I think I gravitate more towards the... Uh, Lager. Yeah. <laughs> we, we're going to butcher okay, that name that, until somebody officially tells us how to say it, because I don't think any of us know officially. You know, right. If someone tells me, I'll keep saying it wrong. It's fine. What, so it says, hey, neighbor, have a gonset. So I think the emphasis is on the gon. Naganset? So it's going to be like naganset. Naganset. Yeah, like just naganset. Yeah. You know, like in French, so, you leave out whole syllables. Like yeah. naganset. All right. Yeah. So, again, I think we all really enjoyed the movie. It's an old classic. It yeah. is probably about a 70-minute runtime with about a 10-minute intro. Really slow roll on the credits to start. And it had the end at the end, which was a good question. When did they stop putting the end at the end of the movie? There's no post-credits. I didn't look it up. It was just like, <laughs> just <posted. laughs> I was like, that was a really good question because I don't know. I mean, because obviously they stopped doing it at some point. Brian, I think in the 70s or so. Mid-70s, I think. But I don't know for sure. Because 70s were a big time for experimenting in cinema and trying something different and going real slow burn on everything. Yeah. Which, not everyone's cup of tea, but it's a really cool way to do a movie. Well, I think if you're showing credits at the end, you know, it's a little insulting to your viewer to be like, the end, and now there's the end credits. Like, you wouldn't figure it out just because there's end credits now. Some yeah. some uh, directors to do it that way. Like Chris Nolan's big on pushing the movie. And then... Main cast gets their, their credit run, and then the full credit run, because people have contracts, and you have to yeah. see someone stay up a certain number of times. Well, I, and even on this movie, we didn't see all the all the people who worked on the film. No. So at, at some no, point, yeah, you, you see like a small. At some small point, piece. they started giving the the second key grip his credit, and that I think is probably when they when they decided, well, if we're going to have all these end credits, let's get rid of the start credits. Yeah. Yeah. And now there's no credits at the beginning at all, and they don't even tell you the name of the film. It just starts. They also got rid of the movie trailer voice guy, and I miss him. Wait, we I saw RRR had the credits, so it was just 40 minutes into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a stark difference in filmmaking and approach to this. And I'm glad that we're kind of doing these back-to-back, because it's like, wow, this is where things are kind of maybe heading, with taking that whole idea of doing segmented storytelling and just breaking it into pieces, which is what a lot of the films are doing today versus it's a long drawn out with, you know, you have a few open credit scenes. <sighs> one big arc. We might arc. need to watch four rooms then. Why is that? 
it's it's literally four different stories. Yeah. It's, it's set in a hotel and food for thought. You said segment. I just thought it does, yeah. it's, it's four different directors doing four short films within a hotel with Tim Roth as the connecting uh, character, and it's it's so good. I love it so much. Right. I don't know if it'll work for the podcast, but I really love that movie. Well, we've done some interesting things. We've 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 seen some films that do some interesting storytelling techniques where you do back back foreshadowing and like you tell it in reverse or whatever. But I think this film, everyone's got we got eight thumbs up on this one. Eight I think thumbs up. The beers. While some of us had more favorites than others, both match pretty well. So again, yeah, find, Roger, find something maybe ESB-ish if you can't get your Anchor Steam beer or find a Dom beer from Germany. I think that really helped out the fact that we knew it was from San Francisco and those of us that have been there were like, oh yeah, there's the Golden Gate Bridge and I've been there and I've been there and I've been there and I recognize this and that. And so, ah, you know. the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With its golden gates. We also saw the Brooklyn Bridge. We did. Yeah, yeah that's right. I that's forgot about that when I made that joke earlier. <laughs> So, uh, you know, and, and as always, the opinions expressed during the taping of this recording are those of the hosts, and I have I didn't see anybody hydrating. We're gonna you, did, you didn't provide any glasses, <laughs> but if uh, uh, Michael O'Hara were to tell you, if you don't, God, I get amazed. If you don't hydrate, you're going to dehydrate. Yeah, really bad. If you don't accent. drink some water, see. Water, <laughs> Yeah, there you go. You're gonna be flat on your back, see. Just do it, Brian. Just do it from there. All right, so I love it. Thanks for hanging in and listening. Um, I know this was kind of a long episode, but hey, there's lots to talk about. A lot of interesting film noir uh, information and information about these older beers. Seek them out if you haven't tried them yet. I mean, there's a lot of good old beers out in America, and not all of them are made by Miller Coors or. Anheuser Busch. There's some independents out there still floating around. Yeah, go find, go seek them out. Support your local. Yeah, all right. So thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Aaron. Until next time. I'm not saying thank you. This is Blake. This is Brian. Thanks for listening. All right, lover. <laughs> <laughs> We're brought off by uh, Rita Hayworth, uh, memorabilia. Yes. Until next time. All right, lover. <laughs> thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. <laughs>